welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, your weekly dose of science on the radio. And this week on the show, we have a special guest in the studio, Dr. Jess Danaher, who is a practicing dietitian and a lecturer in nutrition at RMIT University. And she is going to talk to us all about uh, maybe you've been to your local sports center or gym and seen that on the counter they're selling things, things that are supposed to show you what you're supposed to eat dependent on what your genetic variability is. Oh, yeah, I've seen this sort of thing. And there's been a history of this kind of diet idea. This idea of nutrition and genetics. So she's going to talk us through the science of nutrition and uh, genetics and, um, you know, where we're at with it and whether we should, you know, take on a diet specifically um, dependent on our genetics or what are the other factors we should take into account there. Mm. Is it just all fashion? Is it just all? Is it just a fad? Yeah, could be. Yeah. And speaking of fads, Chris is going to join us in the studio and talk about being the dedicated follower of fashion that he is. <laughs> uh, he's going to talk to us about animal fads. So there's there's animals that actually um, do things. They have behaviours which apparently have no direct benefit to them. They just copy each other because they think it's cool, apparently. And this hasn't just happened once. This happens This happens often. Yeah, well, it in seems, the animal um, kingdom. you know, I mean, animals learn behaviours off each other. That's some, you know, that's a way that they communicate. Sure. But, but some but of these so- behaviours have no apparent benefit <laughs> at all. They just like to do things, so they keep doing them, and then other, other animals copy those animals. Well, um, I can't wait to hear about what some of those behaviours are and what some of um, the animals are calling high fashion at the moment and whether we should stand up and take notice of these animals and maybe follow along. Hmm. Anyway, um, stay tuned for that. On with the show. Our guest today is an accredited practicing dietitian and lecturer in nutrition at RMIT University and is here to lead us through the muddy and often confused waters of personalized nutrition and 
I don't know if you've seen them, these genetic tests for what diet you should be eating that keep popping up around the place. Dr. Jess Danaher, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you, Claire. Thank you for having me. Now, Jess, can you please talk us through what this idea of personalised nutrition is? Mm -hmm, Because you're right. Yeah, these tests are popping up everywhere. And particularly since this human genome has been sequenced and we've had this revolution in, I guess, that next shift in how we treat people for various diseases based on their genetic background. So that includes how diet affects our health. And what we know is that not all people respond the same way to different foods and to different food patterns. Uh, Some people absorb nutrients better than other people, and some people can lose more weight on a particular diet while others don't lose weight at all. So Right, and people are putting that down to genetic factors. Yeah, yeah. What underlies that, at least in part, is genetic makeup. So there's variations in your DNA or, or your genes that make you unique. Right. So I was in my local sports centre the other day and at the counter they had um, genetics kits for personalised nutrition. So I imagine you like take it home, maybe take a swab and then they tell you what diet you should be on. A swab of the cheek is generally the way they do it. Uh, And these have been popping up since the mid 2000s. They're becoming a lot more common now. Uh, And that's because we've got these technologies where we can do these genetic tests faster, cheaper and a more accurate manner. Now, Since that technological progression, the use of genetic testing is being used in a clinical setting, but we are seeing, I guess, ones that you can be brought at the gym or ordered over the internet where you get the kit sent to your home and you do provide a genetic swab back. And what, what sort of information are people getting back from these? Depends on where you're getting it done. So some of the genetic tests might offer about information about 10 genes, up to 100 genes. So it really depends on, on where you're going for that information and the types of testing they're providing. I've seen tests that are based on uh, food preferences, so whether you have uh, genes that are to do with bitter taste and others that claim to let you know whether you should be eating a low-fat or a high-fat diet, things like that. So in terms of how helpful these tests will be for getting people to lead, I guess, more healthy lives, is it a silver bullet or is it just sort of like, you know, is it a fad that people are just going to go through? Genetic testing does definitely have its place. And if you're using the scientific evidence base to tailor dietary recommendations, then that is a really worthy healthcare goal. And it does have significant potential as well. So for some diseases or some medical conditions that might be a bit more clear-cut than others so we know for celiac disease for example there are genes that that can lead to celiac disease and you can have tailored dietary recommendations based on that there's also genes that influence a person's uh, lactose intolerance or lactose persistence so how well you deal with dairy but for things like your diseases of western lifestyle so obesity type 2 diabetes heart disease and some cancers that's when it becomes a little bit more complicated because not just genetics have an influence on whether or not you're going to get those diseases, other complicating factors that come into play. What are some examples of things? So you've got uh, how the environment influences your genes, so whether your genes are turned on or off, the composition of your bacteria in your gut, so your levels of good and bad bacteria, as well as the levels of your metabolites as well. So how much of the science around um, nutrition and genetics is is reliable, is peer-reviewed and is safe for people to follow? Is a genetics test and the, the advice I get from that, from my local gym, going to be reliable? At this stage, I guess what the science is lacking are the systems to put all of the science together. 
and and take everything that we know on this subject and go, okay, well, one gene might have an influence on diet, but there might be a hundred studies done on that. What does that all mean when put together? Right. So like a systematic review and framework for understanding. A little bit further than that is, is where we need to go. There's um recently in the last year, a paper that's come out that's given some proposed guidelines as to how we could critique studies that are based on genetics and provide uh, advice as to whether or not a gene dye interaction is reliable and how it might influence a population. So it's getting all, all, I guess, working groups together to come together and look at the science behind a gene. That's what we need first. I guess where it becomes more complicated, though, is that it's not just as simple as you have this gene, that means that you should eat this diet. When you eat um, certain nutrients or even when you exercise, that's also going to have an effect on your genes. So whether the gene is turned on or off or what activity that gene has. Right. That's the environmental factors that are that are working on the genes. That's right. And the genetic tests at the moment, all they do is say, you have this gene, mm. therefore you should eat this diet. And it's not as simple as that because what you're exposed to in the environment is also going to have a reverse effect on how those genes um, are being expressed, expressed. Or, or their activity levels. Right. So if you are, you know, running a lot and exercising a lot um, and you've got a gene, you know, for weight loss or something like that or mm-hmm. how, you know, how you process a type of sugar or something like that. Um, and if another person has that exact same gene but, you know, isn't running, that might be expressed in two completely different ways. Yeah, well, one um, example that we do know of is the fat mass and obesity-associated genes. So that's got the strongest association with obesity, aptly named. Uh, and studies have shown that people that are more physically active will do greater amounts of exercise. They have a reduced risk of getting obesity even if they've got the risky variations of that gene. Now, one may argue, well, do you need that information to tell people they need to exercise more? Exercise mm. we, we know is, is great. We should be doing more of it. So does knowing or, or having that genetic information, would that even influence your decision making when providing recommendations? Probably not in that case. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, I'm interested to hear what you think is probably lacking in this space and where you want to take your future research. Well, I think what's lacking in that space and something that I definitely can't do, but I need need help doing, and we're looking for, I guess, teams that can bring this together, is big bioinformatic systems or big data systems where you can get all of this information and put it together and and make sense of it. But we also know that a person's dietary advice um, or giving dietary advice specific to genetic makeup, it's complicated by your gut microbiome, the environmental influence on your genes, as well as different metabolites. So what my research does is sort of bring all those pieces of the puzzle together, as well as having your genetic information that you can get from the clinical tests available at your gym, but putting all pieces of puzzle together to know exactly what dietary recommendations we should be providing to a person. The gut microbiome, it's a huge 
huge area of study and area of research at the moment and yet burgeoning when it comes to sort of like looking at you know what we should be eating mm-hmm. to to um, encourage a healthy gut microbiome and how that's going to affect our health can you talk us through a little bit about that so the establishment of our gut microbiome really just starts well, it starts at birth. So it's even influenced by the mode of delivery of how, of how you're born, um, but also the, the initial food that you're eating. Um, so by the time we start eating solid foods, we're already well on the way to establishing what our adult gut microbiome should be. So research has shown that fiber, fat and sugar, uh, as well as even artificial sweeteners, they may all have an influence on your gut microbiome. But these relationships are complex and us scientists, we're only just really beginning to understand their full impact and how the gut microbiome may influence health. So some studies have linked it to obesity, heart disease and depression. Um, But these studies are all emerging as to how those things work and what those interactions are. And I imagine putting it all together into, you know, a systematic full-scale approach Mm. using all of the data is going to be an extremely powerful tool in, you know, helping people lead healthy lives. It is a massive task that needs to be undertaken. Um, And to put it into perspective, like you were talking about these genetic tests that might offer 10, 10 up to maybe 100 if you're lucky genes. The Human Genome Project estimated that humans have between 20,000 and 25,000 genes. How many genes are we talking about that we know about um, that are affected by nutrition? Oh, there are several. So there's numerous genes that have been reported to alter nutrition or your ability to metabolize different nutrients. Um, and within a, a, a gene, you've got different SNPs or, or polymorphisms, and even those SNPs can have a different effect on nutrient metabolism. So the different pathways that they have interactions with and putting all that information together and making sense of that, that's something that either, even further complicates the use of that science in practice. So it's a lot more complicated than just picking up a genetic test. Yes, <laughs> definitely. So we've spoken about the, the gut microbiome, but we know that that has or consists of a set of genes that is about 150 times larger than that human genome. Wow. That's a lot of genes. Massive. It's a lot to get your head around. (laughs) Yeah, and it's a lot to think in terms of everything interacting together and trying to map all those interactions. Mm. And seeing the mechanisms behind behind the interactions, a lot of the genes we know might be associated with health come from studies that are sort of like big genetic fishing expeditions where you've just got a huge population and you go, okay, this gene seems to be associated or related to this disease. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we know how those relationships work and what's underlying them. So I'm interested, do you think in the future we'll see a time where, you know, we can get a swab of our DNA do a physical assessment to see what our environment looks like and then do, you know, check out what our gut microbiome is and then from that sort of get an assessment of what exactly we should be putting into our bodies to give us the best health outcomes? I hope so. I think that that will be a thing, but it goes bigger than that. So I guess what that considers is your genetics and your gut microbiome and things that are going on from a biological perspective. But if you're personalising nutrition recommendations it's bigger because you have to take into account cultural variations and preferences, food intolerances, physical activity, allergies, so much more. So it's more than just that biological data or your genetic and gut microbiome data that you need to take into account. 
Now, Jess, for all those people out there, I mean, people love nutrition. People love finding out more about themselves, I find. (laughs) Where can people read up more about this so that they're aware in a scientifically accurate manner? Well, the Dietitians Association of Australia is a great resource. So if you Google them, their website will pop up. They do a lot of press releases on sort of the hot topics in that area. And you can also find an accredited practicing dietitian through there. So if you're looking to get nutrition advice, I definitely recommend seeing an accredited practicing dietitian. Some may or may not use genetic testing, um, depending on the the services that, that they are providing. And can people follow you? Do you have a blog? Is there any way that uh, people can stay up to date with your research? Yeah, well, I try to translate scientific research into the most easily digestible nutrition messages that you know, I possibly can via uh, Instagram and Facebook. So the handle is at Dr. Jess Danaher. D-A-N- A-H-E-R. Well, thanks so much, Jess, for bringing a little bit of science to the world of personalised nutrition. Best of luck for the future research and please come back to Lost in Science and tell us all about it. I will. Thanks, Claire. I'm Maggie Adairn-Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR.
few weeks ago on this show, we talked about the the biggest awards in the science calendar, um, namely... Which ones? The, oh. We've um, talked the, about all of them lately, but yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, we haven't talked about... We haven't covered the Prime Minister's prizes, I think, yet, have we? Oh, well, I don't know who the Prime Minister was, so... That's fair. They were on the other day. Yeah, they were on the other day. The, um, the Arkies? No, no, the Ig Nobel oh, Prizes. Ig Nobel. Yes, the Ig Nobel Prizes. Yeah. There's one that, that we didn't have time to, to discuss, which I wanted to bring up now, which was the Anthropology Prize. There's an Ig Nobel Anthropology Prize? Well, they make different categories every year. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, this one was to researchers from Sweden, Romania, Denmark, Netherlands, Germany, UK, and Indonesia, and Italy. It's a lot of people. Um, they, for collecting evidence in a zoo that chimpanzees imitate humans about as often and about as well as humans imitate chimpanzees. <laughs> So the, so the chimps are imitating the visitors to the zoo. Yeah, yeah. In so, the same way that the the zoo visitors are imitating the chimps. Basically, so this is this all took place at a zoo in Sweden. What they found is that human visitors and the chimps in the in the enclosures imitated each other at a similar rate. So about ten percent of actions observed were imitations. Um, they observed, on, on both sides. Yeah. They observed that generally the humans were better than the chimps at imitating, except in the indoor sections of the, the exhibit, where they're pretty much equal. Um, and in about 36% of cases, there was back-and-forth imitation, as in, say, a human would imitate a chimp, and then the chimp would imitate the human again, and they'd had this kind of interaction. Would the, would the human imitate the chimp, and then the chimp imitate the human imitating the chimp? Yes, basically. Wow. They would play the back-and-forth, you know, <laughs> playing, playing an imitation game, much like... Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, <laughs> didn't expect that. Uh, no, yeah. So basically it was this kind of interspecies social communication. Um, so it's all about the interaction and they're making connections across the, the species barrier. And it's quite an interesting thing happening um, of, you know, demonstrating that other non-human animals played these kind of these kind of social games. So there's no kind of – they're learning to do something, but there's no, like, direct purpose to it. It's just kind of a social interaction. And this reminded me of other examples, famous examples, of animals learning to do things without any obvious practical purposes. Um, in fact, the specific one it reminded me of was in the year 2010 when a group of chimpanzees in Zambia um, picked up the fad of sticking grass in their ear. So – what? Yeah, it all started one day when was one chimp called Julie, well, they, they called Julie, who just basically one day just stuck a piece of grass in her ear. Then she, you know, she just kept doing it over and over again. Other chimps saw her doing it uh, and they must have thought it looked cool because they started to copy her. Really? Yeah. They didn't seem to be like keeping it for later. And then they just they stick a bit of grass in there and then go about their, their chimpy business. So is this small blade, blades of grass yeah, into stiff. the ear? And and um, it would stay there, or like yeah. as a way to you know clean out their ears. Yeah, yeah. Then they would, they would stay which? there. It would just stay there. It would it would stay there. They just stick it in their ear, and they would just stay there. Like jewelry. Um, like like jewelry. Yeah, and they, it was basically um, so. In one year, they observed out of the twelve chimps in the group, eight of them they observed doing it. Um, in the neighbouring groups of chimpanzees, they only observed one chimp doing it. Um, so it was basically a fad in this one particular group, and it wasn't driven by any other particular need in the environment. Um, it doesn't even like it's not even clear whether it was a pleasant thing to do. There's some videos attached to the paper of the chimps doing this, and this is one this young male chimp. He kind of looks a bit confused, <laughs> and he sticks it in his ear, and then he kind of shivers and pulls it out again. So it looked like it was uncomfortable, but you know, it's like oh, everyone else is doing it. Look, I mean, there are plenty of analogous uh, human behaviours that aren't comfortable, but we all do it. Yeah. I mean, piercing your ears is not comfortable. 
No, no. Have you tried sticking grass in your ear, though, Claire? You should. Maybe I you reckon should it'd it be more comfortable than piercing your ears. I don't think it would be. So was the was was Julie the original? Chief? Yeah, yeah. Was yeah. she? Did she have some particular status in the group? Was I she... think she was a high-ranking chief. Right. Yeah, yeah. So within the within the community, they they wanted her approval, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and it just but it just it just carried on. You know, other other chimps would see other ones doing it, and yeah, it just become you know something yeah. you had to do. And did their behaviour change after? Like, say there was a chimp that wasn't doing it, and then it did do it, and then was it like socially Ostracized? accepted? Um, I don't. I mean, this was a group, an existing group, so it just went. It just it just spread. Spread like wildfire yeah. through the grass. Yeah, the ear grass. Now I have another example of imitating animals. Uh, Claire, you know where this is going. Yeah, this is this one's a bit closer to home and a different species. Um, there was recently a fad for tail walking in bottlenose dolphins in South Australia. So, this is where dolphins like I often see them in like uh, those kind of Sea World type things where they go up in their tail and they bounce up and down on the tail. I don't know how they do it. Like they've got fins and stuff. I, I oh, they've got a very powerful tail. Is they got very pretty much tails. it. <laughs> so this all happened in the 1980s when there was a, a dolphin um, that got trapped in a harbour in Port River near Adelaide. Um, and it was like a polluted harbour. So they there was a dolphinarium called Marineland, and they took this dolphin in. They kept it, put the dolphin called Billy. They kept her in their facility for about three weeks. She was not trained to be a performing dolphin or anything. She was just there amongst the other dolphins, and she saw them doing this tail walking. So she learned to do it by watching these other dolphins in this in this performing show. They released her after three weeks, and then she just kind of started doing it herself, just tail walking around the boats and stuff. Um, and then uh, eventually another female, which they called Wave, also picked up the, the, the trick. This um, is another wild female. Yes. Yes. So who, another who, wild who, dolphin. Who'd never been who'd in never the marine been park. never been into the marine That's park. right. That's right. Um, she started getting better at it. Um, Billy eventually died of kidney failure in 2009, um, and Wave just kept doing it. She kept going for it and got other dolphins to do it as well. Her daughter picked it up. Four other adult females in the group picked it up. Four other juveniles. Um, apparently, it's still done. It's fading a little bit. The peak of the year, peak of the fashion was in 2011. Um, it's been fading a bit since then, but some of them still do it. Um, and, you know, no one really knows why this happened. It doesn't seem to actually... You know, be a good way of getting food or anything like that. Maybe, you know, well, obviously, maybe the first dolphin saw dolphins getting rewarded for it and thought it was a good way to get food, but the ones in the wild didn't seem to do anything. They just seemed worth that perhaps a shot, they were... though, isn't it? Well, perhaps worth a shot. Maybe it's just fun. Well, maybe... I wonder, oh, oh, it makes me wonder how did someone figure out that the first dolphin could do that to train them to do it? That's a really good point. That's an excellent question. I would not have. I would don't know. Maybe there must have been some dolphin. Some, some dolphin must have done it at some point. And someone went, that's some amazing. So, Do it again. <laughs> so we've got this completely wrong. This is not a case of dolphins learning behavior and then spreading other dolphins. It's basically dolphins teaching humans behavior and then humans spread it to other dolphins, perhaps. Yeah, I don't know. That's um, that's an interesting point. It's, it's a whole big twist on the on that's the a tail. twist on the on the the tail of the dolphins. But um, I was going to say this shows that that dolphins animals sometimes do copy pointless behaviors for fun. But you know, Stu, you could be onto something. There could be a deeper a deeper story going on here, and perhaps you know, we'll find out that grass in the ear does something for you after all.
That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.